It's time for Sports Life Balance with John Moffat. One of the aspirational ideals, ideals of the Olympics is that if we come together, we break down the stereotypical barriers that keep us apart and that keep us from effecting change and that we we learn that we are more alike than we are different and that's the beauty of being in the village or the beauty of being together that we see that whatever corner of the world you're from you realize that we are as human beings the eight now eight billion of us on planet earth we have the ability to effect one-to-one change and I, and I profoundly believe that change is only effected one-to-one and so I think that's the beauty of the Olympic Games. That's Alan Abrahamson, award-winning sports writer, best-selling author, journalism professor, and columnist for NBCOlympics.com. And this is Sports Life Balance. I'm your host, John Moffat, and on this podcast, we're always on a search for new perspectives about how lessons from sports can improve everyone's everyday lives. Alan is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Olympic and Paralympic movement, and surprisingly, he was unathletic as a boy. But he was deeply inspired by watching the historic 1972 Munich Games. And without looking back, he set his sights on being a sports journalist. Alan has covered 11 Olympics, including this past summer in Tokyo. And with more than 30 years of telling in-depth stories of athletes and the games, Alan provides a totally unique point of view of what the culture of sports means to all of us. Well, Alan, it's great to finally see you in person. It's been quite a while, as it has for many of us through the last trying 18 months or so. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, John, and welcome to beautiful, although cloudy, Hermosa Beach. (laughs) Well, we did get some welcome rain this morning, at least at my house. Same here. Same here. I've been looking forward to uh, chatting with you for quite a while. I mean, we've been talking about this, and you went to Tokyo and all of that, so it's just taken a while to get to it. But um, I've been looking forward to it because of your unique perspective on not only the Olympic Games in general, um, but also to comment on the context of this completely unprecedented year um, and a half of COVID versus sports. I don't know whether unique is good or bad, but let's get it on, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that um, is impossible to not notice is that Olympic history is intertwined and tied and oftentimes part of the global history of what's going on uh, globally. And, you know, going back in time, I mean, we can talk about the ancient Greeks actually postponing wars because the games were coming and they wanted to have a peaceful games. So I think that's a really astute and insightful observation. What do they say? You should always compliment the host. But no, <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, and I think in our time, I like to say that the Olympics are the leading indicator of everything that's going on in our world. Mm. We can get to the postponement in a minute. <clears throat> But if you think about the way our world is headed, and if you think about what the President of the United States is trying to tell us as Americans, he's saying that our world is shifting to China in particular. And I don't think there's any, me personally, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And if you think about where we are in 
uh, the middle of, well, not the middle, in the Olympic cycle, we're in the middle of what we in the Olympic business call the Asia Triple. Mm-hmm. We've been through Pyeongchang. We've been through Tokyo. And in just a few months, we'll be in Beijing. There's no doubt that the world is shifting toward uh, uh, Asia, and in particular to China. And uh, uh, the president and his advisors are keenly aware that the 21st century is going to be the century in which the United States and China uh, try to figure out who's what and what's what in our world. Mm -hmm. And the Olympics has been telling us that if only people would pay some attention to that. Right. And you said we have 2022 because of the COVID delay of Tokyo. We're what, six months? Oh, not even. Four months. Four months in between games. uh, Uh, Six months between games, but we're four months away. Four months away, right, right, which is uh, another very unique um, situation that COVID has put everyone under. You know, we've seen, obviously, through history, you see the pendulum swinging back and forth. If you go back to, say, 1936, we have, you know, the Berlin Games, of course, which were hosted by... um, by Hitler and all the things that uh, came along with that leading into World War II. But we also had the transcendent performance of Jesse Owens. So there's always the performance, there's always athletes that are pushing through as well, in addition to all the backdrop of history that we're experiencing. I think the Owens performance is the best argument to those who say, among other things, that there should not be games in Beijing. It is my personal opinion, and I think the opinion of many other people who are a lot smarter than I am, that there will not be a boycott in Beijing. But to those who would say there should be a boycott, and and John, I I don't need to tell you about boycotts, Mm -hmm. but uh, the idea that, but but for Jesse Owens and the American team showing up in Berlin, we would never have had the performance uh, of Jesse Owens. Uh, but for the British team showing up in Moscow in 1980, we would never have had the first of the Steve Ovet and Seb Co races. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Ubroth has observed memorably that boycotts only hurt athletes, and I'm a firm, uh, in fact, a resolute believer in that philosophy. Well, you, you mentioned it, but clearly I am as well being <laughs> part of that uh, 1980 boycott team. Um, I, I'd like to get your perspective because I've only spoken to you briefly about that boycott. And uh, it's just like a colossal, I don't know if it's an irony necessarily the right word, but you know, we boycotted those games because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Well, we just got out of Afghanistan 41 years later last month. Yeah, that is the one of, uh, if you were to look in the dictionary, I believe that would be the definition of irony. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Sports Life Balance. Let me take a moment to tell you about our partners, ROCA. Their motto is field tested, athlete approved. And let me tell you, Roka's two founders are both fellow Stanford All-American swimmers, and obviously they know their stuff. And I've been field testing their gear and glasses for years, and Roka rocks. Their entire line of eyewear is really lightweight, and they all come with adjustable non-slip nose and temple pads, and they stay put right on my face, even when I'm hot and sweaty and working out. And they're comfortable. I totally forget that I'm wearing them. 
They look great too. Roka has a huge selection of styles. And they also have their exclusive home tryout program where they'll send you your choice of four different styles. You put them to the test and then you get to purchase your favorite. And if you're a triathlete or a swimmer, the new Maverick wetsuit is here, 10 years in the making, and it's an absolute game changer. So head to roca.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter the code SLB, as in, yes, you guessed it, Sports Life Balance. That's three letters, SLB, and you save 20% on your first order. Enjoy. Before we get back to Alan Abrahamson, I'd like to share a quote that relates to both the 1980 Olympic boycott, which we were just talking about, and America's 20-year war in Afghanistan. Believe it or not, it's from philosopher and socialist revolutionary Karl Marx. And way back in the mid-19th century, he said, history repeats itself, first as tragedy, second as farce. That's something to think about. We're back, and you're listening to Sports Life Balance. Uh, my, my own story, which I believe you and I have talked about, is nothing in comparison to yours. Mm-hmm. But I had studied Russian at Northwestern, graduating in 1980, intending to go to Moscow as a young journalist. And then, of course, the United States boycotted. Uh, I want to be perfectly crystal clear that what happened to me is of little to no consequence compared to someone like you or the other the 219 athletes that were that didn't get to go but having had the arc of my career disrupted uh, significantly mm-hmm. i'm profoundly aware that uh, boycotts don't do anything diplomatically look <laughs> as you just said it's 41 years later <clears throat> The United States just inelegantly, to use a word, left Afghanistan after 20 years. And again, my own opinion after 23 years of being around the Olympics is that this withdrawal from Afghanistan has only confirmed what for me is one of the truths about being an American in the Olympic landscape, which is that we as Americans... I'll say this very directly. We as Americans are one of 206 National Olympic Committees, and we have no business, no business, telling anybody else what they should be doing or how they should be doing things. Zero business. Amen. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Um, I want to go back in time a little bit this passion for sports for, that you have, where did, where did it start coming from? When did you start noticing that you had this great passion? That's a great question. So let me tell you my uh, story of woe. I was a scrawny little <laughs> Jewish boy in a very non-Jewish environment in a little town called Clayton, Ohio, not even Dayton, which was the nearest town of consequence. I was in Dayton, uh, Clayton, Ohio. Okay. And in my high school... Uh, which is called Northmont High School. By the uh-huh. way, my 45th high school reunion is tonight. I, know. I guess you're not going. I'm not going, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, in my high school, uh, the boys on the football team got to wear their uh, football jerseys to school on Friday nights. Um, that was not me. 
I was not a football player. <laughs> I was the definition of your basic scrawny little Jewish boy. And to back up, in um, elementary school, at Clayton Elementary School, my brother David and I, who's he's 19 months younger than I am, we were the first ever little Jewish boys in this classic red brick little uh, Midwestern schoolhouse. They, they truthfully had no idea what to do with us. They'd never seen little Jewish boys. <laughs> at the six, it's sixth grade in the, at the uh, Christmas play, and by for sure it was the Christmas play. Right. It was not the ecumenical snowflake uh, serenade or winter assembly or anything like that. It was for sure the Christmas play. Uh, all the other little boys and girls were up front, and little Jewish Alan was uh, ordered to stay behind and pull the curtain. So, uh, you know, I was othered, as we would say now, from a very young age. Um, so I was uh, slow to develop physically, and um, high school and middle school, or, or junior high, as we would call it, were a trauma for me. So <clears throat> uh, three things happened uh, at the 1972 Munich Olympics, right. which I watched with rapt attention in, uh, in, the, in September of 1972. Uh, one, my bar mitzvah had been the year before. Okay. So number one, um, of course, the Israelis were kidnapped and murdered. Right. Um, and uh, to make a very long story short, uh, I later became very good friends with Jim McKay. And uh, you can see a story that I wrote uh, in the LA Times about, uh, about Jim, uh, who, who taught me one of my favorite journalism sayings, which is, uh, you know, we... Um, our, our job is not just to, to write what's in front of us, but, uh, uh, but John, uh, our job is to look down side streets. And mm. I think that's always so poignant and beautiful. Mm. Um, Jim, Jim was one of my uh, mentors and heroes. Uh, two, uh, the American men lost in basketball. And for a little boy in Dayton, Ohio, mm. where the Dayton Flyers were everything right. in the winter, uh, I, I'm sure some of the people who are listening to this will know that the American men still to this day have not collected their silver medals. It was a hugely controversial game. And right. It remains so. And, and three, uh, Frank Shorter won the marathon. So uh, as, as I think everyone knows, uh, the marathon is the last event on the Olympic right. calendar. Yeah. So when Frank won the marathon, I was watching and I was like, w w wait, you, you could have status? And you can be someone without playing football? I was like, wow. Hmm. So Frank Shorter literally rocked my life. Wow. I was like, I'm either going to win the marathon, which uh, maybe didn't happen, or I'm going to be part of this by writing about it or being part of this. So it turned out that a really good friend of mine named Mark Katz had mm -hmm. uh, just graduated from Ohio University and was working at the Dayton Daily News. And uh, he started dragging me around Dayton to Dayton Gems games and minor league stuff. And uh, I started working at the Dayton Daily News. And uh -oh. by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, I, I was running what was called the agate page, you know, the box uh -huh. scores and stuff like that. Uh, other normal high school kids were going out on dates and stuff. I yeah. was working at the newspaper. And, uh, wow. and then I went to Northwestern, uh, yeah. uh, where I'm part of a really famous class. Uh, Mike Wilbon on Pardon the Interruption mm -hmm. is part of my class. Uh, Christine Brennan is part of my class. Wow. Charles Whitaker, who's now the dean of the school, is part of my class. 
And then there's uh, lowly me. The, the joke in my family, <laughs> joke in my family, this is a, it's, it's very good part of being me in my house because uh, the kids keep me humble. There's a restaurant in Evanston. There used to be a restaurant in Evanston called Cheesies. Uh-huh. Uh, and on the wall were uh, um, uh, caricatures of famous uh, Northwestern Medill alumni like okay. uh, Will Bond, uh, Christine. I think Christine might have been up. Um, uh, Mike Greenberg, Dan Ravel. Uh, and others, and the kids would come home and say, guess who's still not on the wall at Cheesy's? Alan And, and Alan is still, still not on the wall, so it's all good. Oh, there's going to have to be a little bit of a lobbying movement, I think. Yeah, I don't think so. It's all good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you mentioned Northwestern. So you kind of went from, as a boy, as a, a fan in 72, to actually wanting to be part of telling the stories and giving the information of sports. Um, was this your, was this your thought of your vocation when you entered Northwestern? Because you didn't necessarily study journalism or did, did you study no, journalism for, and Russian? For sure. I studied journalism. I went oh, to the, okay. I went to the Medill journalism school Okay. and, and minored in Russian Okay. with the idea that I was going to be a sports writer. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. That was it. I mean, wow. I, I had my, from the time I was 14, I had this in mind being covering the Olympic games. Really? Yeah, I'm one what? of these freaky little boys who well, under who had this dream of of wanting to cover the Olympics. What is it about the Olympics for you? Yeah, you think? You know, I think I understood even at an early age that uh, the Olympics represented this this idea uh, that we we could possibly, when we're all together, the. the I don't know how to explain this except through a, a Jewish idea. Okay. Um, the, there's a Jewish idea called tikkun olam, which says okay. um, we should all try to repair the world little by little, day by day. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, our world is fragile and broken. I mean, I, I accept that as a completely, as the premise of everything I see and do. Okay. But one of the aspirational ideals, ideals of the Olympics is that um, if we come together, we break down the stereotypical barriers Mm -hmm. that keep us apart and that keep us from uh, effecting change. And that we, we, we learn that we are more alike than we are Mm -hmm. different. And that's the beauty of being in the village or the beauty of being together that we see that whether you're whatever corner of the world you're from, you realize that we are as human beings, the eight now 8 billion of us on planet earth, we have the ability to affect one-to-one change. And I, and I profoundly believe that change is only affected one-to-one. And so I think that's the beauty of the Olympic games. I, I agree with you completely. Of course, my perspective was shaped and formed as being an athlete, um, and it, but it really is the same thing um, that the athletes, it doesn't matter where you're from. We're all trying to do the same thing. We all have family back home. We've all made sacrifices. We've all, it's just whatever, you know, we've all done the same thing. We come from the same place. And I'll give you an example is I was in uh, Europe, traveling Europe in 1980 when the boycott was not for sure, but it was definitely talked about. And um, I would have uh, Soviet after Soviet swimmer come up to me and say, please, please.
please, please come to our Olympics, come to our Olympics. You're welcome. You know, as if we feel the same way as our government. But because I was so, I had all of these one-on-one -on -one relationships, I know that that's not the case. They weren't our enemies. And we aren't their enemies. No, it's, it's never the case that people are each other's enemies. It's, I don't know. I teach my students at USC not to use the words never and always, so I'll try not. I'll try to back <laughs> up. It's almost always the case that individuals are not each other's enemies, and mm. especially in sports, because when you compete against each other, you realize that each of you has sacrificed a tremendous amount. And like you said, each of you has a family. Each of you has put in the grind mm -hmm. each of you is there for a reason and then you can appreciate each other and then you can appreciate each other not as as an enemy but as a rival and that's a very very different thing oh my gosh yes oh yeah i was really good friends with many of my rivals of course of course and, and then what happens is when you compete against these people typically it's when you're in your teens and your 20s mm -hmm. and then this is hard for these people in their teens and 20s to appreciate, but then you get into your 30s and your 40s, and then you have some maturity and, and, some, uh, <laughs> and some life experience, and you look back and you go, you know what? I, I've learned a little something, and maybe we have connection mm -hmm. and togetherness and some community, and those are the things that really drive change, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's at that level for all the billions of fans of people who follow the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games and watch them and are inspired by them? I think at some level, yes. And I think that's the reason the Olympic Games, especially through the 20th century, and I think there's a real question about whether this can continue in the 21st, or a reason I'll tell you about in a second. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the reason the Olympic Games have become or became the vehicle by which people around planet Earth bought in to the idea of the games. It's mm -hmm. a bad sentence, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Oh, totally. Just, well, but in, in one of the reasons that I wanted to bring up the ancient games in Greece is because that's the same thing. Right. It's, it's in different forms, in a different, whole different planet than it was back then. It's the same thing, isn't well, it? But to, to even back up further, John, we, we all need, each of us needs hopes and dreams. With, we, we need three things to live in our world. We, we need water. Mm -hmm. well, we need water. We can live without food, but you can't. You got to have water. But you, you got to have hope. Without hope, you are nobody, nothing, nowhere. And then you got to have a dream of some sort. So the Olympic Games for almost everybody, everywhere, has provided hopes and dreams of some sort. Right. Right. It's Absolutely. Very, it's very different than Premier League football or national, or the National Football League in our country. It's very different. How so? I'm curious what you different, how you differentiate those Be, two Because, the, and I love the NFL. God knows. I covered the league for two years, and mm -hmm. it was so much fun. Okay. Oh, my God, it was fun. <laughs> but the, the difference is that the NFL is a commercial enterprise, and so is, the, is, so is Premier League soccer. Everyone knows that everyone's in it for money. And, right. and, and I get the Olympic Games are, are now a professional enterprise, for mm -hmm. sure. But there's something very, very different about the idea of the, of the Olympics. It, it's, it's the aspirational ideal of trying to make the world better through sport. Now, the NFL is not trying to make the world better. No. Neither is, neither is a, a game between you know, Chelsea and Liverpool. That, that just is not happening. If it does, it's incidental. Okay. All right. 
yeah, I, I, um, the inspiration is there and the enthusiasm is there, but it has a whole kind of different right. Um, mission. Right. So you grew up in the Midwest. You went to college in the Midwest, and somehow you ended here in Los Angeles. Um, what brought you here initially oh, to LA? Well, that's a long and circuitous story. I'll try to make it as okay. short as possible. <laughs> so in uh, 1982... I was working at the Associated Press, cranking out somewhere in Chicago, cranking out, well, working nights and weekends. Uh, my, my shift was either four to midnight, which meant really four to like two in the morning, mm -hmm. or six till uh, two in the morning, which really meant to like four. I was blessed to have two great mentors, uh, a night mm. supervisor named Glenn Wolf. Mm -hmm and a radio guy named Nick D'Alessio, okay. who took an interest in me and said, Alan, this is what you're doing right. This is how you're not doing things right. And um, uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time uh, dumped my sorry ass. Uh, she measured me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> happens. Uh, she measured me for life uh, and decided that I was... Uh, at $18,000 a year, working nights and weekends, not going to uh, mm. uh, be everything that she wanted. By the way, which was now, many years later, I can see a gift. At the time, a heartbreaker, but uh, a gift. That's the way life is, isn't it? It is, uh -huh. isn't it? <laughs> so I uh, got a job uh, after that at the Sun-Times, and uh, I was 24 24, 23, 24. Mm -hmm. And I was very idealistic and I did not want to work for Rupert Murdoch. Okay. So, even back then. Even way back then. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I decided, hmm, what to do? So I went to law school. So my choices were Northwestern, where my dad had gone. He was a lawyer and a county judge in Ohio. Uh, Northwestern, where I had gone to undergrad, uh, USC. Okay. Uh, or the University of California at uh, San Francisco, which is called Hastings. Right. I also could have gone to Cornell, but I was like, I'm done winter, like for sure. I'm not going. Yeah, it's a serious winter, isn't yeah. it? So I, uh, went to, I moved to San Francisco, oh. uh, where after a year I was a California resident and my tuition cost me $1,000 for the year. Nice. Also, I was, uh, without being undue about this, single and straight in San Francisco in the 1980s. So I was. You enjoyed your experience. Going I loved to law living in San Francisco. It was, uh, by the way, but I loved living in San Francisco for many, many, many reasons. Mm -hmm. It was completely eye-opening um, for this young Midwestern boy. Mm -hmm. uh, I it was a great experience. And it was a great experience. And you and did you look down the side alleys? Did you take some I of the? I looked down many side alleys and saw many fascinating things. That, uh, and, and in all seriousness, now I'll be very I'll, yeah. I'll switch gears here and stop being so glib. Um, it was the height of the AIDS crisis. Uh huh. Um, I had never seen. Uh, we had no, and back in Clayton, Ohio. We had no black people in my high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I first encountered uh, black and brown people in Chicago and in San Francisco. I was like, this is an amazingly diverse city. Mm -hmm. There were Asian Americans of every different kind. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So um, the thing that, uh, that then shaped me was three weeks into law school, my dad died in a plane crash. Oh, aye, aye, aye. 
right? So um, uh, I finished my first year of school. I think my grades were like C's or C minuses. I, I don't know. I can't even remember. Uh, <laughs> but I did pass. I did pass. So I took the next year off and I backpacked around the world by myself for a year. Okay. Wow. Right? Uh, and uh, fulfilled a lifelong dream of doing that. So came back to school, got pretty much straight A's. And um, I mean, then I, w- I, mean, I knew what I was doing, and uh-huh. I, I excelled. I, um, I got A pluses, for instance, in evidence. Uh-huh. I got A pluses in constitutional law, which I loved. Uh-huh. I got A pluses in, of all things, tax law, if you can believe it. Wow. That. I know, which is very difficult. Uh, and then I took the bar, passed the bar, got a job at a big law firm in San Francisco and practiced law for a year, which I completely hated. Mm. Mm. Uh, I got assigned to a case involving the, uh, uh, an antitrust case involving the market for curly Q-shaped frozen french fries. Mm. So I spent a, uh, a winter in potato warehouses in, oh, <laughs> in Pasco, Washington and Twin Falls, Idaho. And, I was, and, and honestly, if I'd had more maturity... This is all a reflection on how immature I was. I would have said to the, the partner I was working for, you know, I don't really think this litigation thing is for me. Maybe I ought to go do tax or maybe I, maybe I ought to try some other stuff. But instead, I was like, I think I'm just going to go back to journalism. So when you were in law school, was it, was it this passion that you always had on the side that you never were never quenching that thirst yeah. because you were in pursuit of what you thought, what you wanted, which was law school. No, it almost, no, I, I don't really know. If, I, I, I think law school afforded me, law school afforded me what I think a great number of young men in their mid twenties need, which is maturity. Mm-hmm. Even though I made this, completely immature decision to go back to journalism, which actually turned out to be the right decision. Okay. However, however, I think a lot of young men in their mid-20s are like, uh, who, who am I? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Uh, yep. you know, yeah. and, and for me, it, it afforded me that time out of the workplace where I was able to find myself. Well, okay, so you... You go back to journalism and you end up in Los Angeles. So uh, this is so I, I ended up getting a job with the LA Times in San Diego. Okay. So I was there. For, I did news for nine years. Right. So so the sports passion was just kind of there dormant for you. Yeah, because I couldn't get a job. I mean, it it is very hard to get a job in sports writing. It, it always I was and it. always yeah. will be. So I was like any job I could get. Yeah. Right. So. I spent nine years covering news for the LA Times. Okay. And the first three and a half were in San Diego. Okay. And it was a great job, honestly. Uh, I met my wife, uh, and we, we had a full-on edition in San Diego. Um, some of the people who are listening to this might remember a murder case involving a woman named Betty Broderick, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Uh, killed her uh, ex-husband and uh, the new wife in bed. I covered this trial. It was fascinating. There, there were movies that have been made about it. Right. Uh, after three and a half years, the Times, being in Los Angeles, moved me and Laura up to Los Angeles. Uh, and then I ended up covering the Menendez brothers trial. Uh, that was day after day right, after day right. of being on the front page. Okay, so this lands in the 90s. Yeah, it's 1993 yeah. and early yeah, 1994. Yeah. And don't forget, we had riots. 
wildfires. Earthquake. Earthquake. Yeah. At the exactly when the when the Menendez brothers trial was being deliberated, when the juries were deliberating, uh, riots, um, mudslides, wildfires, earthquakes, Menendez's, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, some guy named O.J. Yeah, Simpson. Yeah, some guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it was an amazing time to be a news reporter. Right. And then, so in 1998, uh, the two American embassies in East Africa were bombed. Right. In Dar es Salaam and in, in Nairobi. So I volunteered to go cover this. And wow. they said, go. So this amounted to a trial for the foreign staff. So came back and they said, hey, Alan, you can write. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well. So they uh, suggested that I might be able to join the foreign staff. I came home and Laura said, no, there's just not a chance you're going to be able to join the foreign staff because uh, we had two children and mm -hmm. she was pregnant with Rachel. And I said, so what am I going to do? So it turns out <sighs> that the sports department was looking for a, for an investigative reporter. So it was just kind of like an empty slot that you applied for. It wasn't a mentor. It wasn't some muse came down and blessed you with some sort of a not at all open door. No, but I, I mean, I had known Bill Dwyer, who was the sports editor. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I applied. I got the job. And, okay, now this is serendipity. This is one of these maybe life is meant to be kinds of things. Because literally with uh, 10 days, a week, two weeks later, the scandal involving Salt Lake's winning bid for the 2002, 2002 games you're right so 18 years later john 18 years later i'm finally covering the olympics oh wow right right yeah and so the whole with mitt romney at the helm and and all of that so that all ended up you know developing over 1999 yes history does revolve through and in and around the games doesn't it doesn't it um so you were often running Award-winning, you went on to get much acclaim at thank, the thank LA you. Times. Thank you. Um, and how long were you able to continue writing sports, or did you choose to continue writing sports at the LA Times? It was better part of a decade, wasn't yeah, eight it? Eight years. I, I stayed there through two thousand and six. Okay. And I left after the Torino Games, about five or six months after the Torino Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um. So let me let me just give everybody some context here. <clears throat> to be the Olympics writer at the LA Times was maybe the best job in American journalism for a long time. Because the games had been in Los Angeles in 1932 and 1984, right. the Times had long recognized that the Olympics was part of life in Los Angeles. And so there was... And Dwyer, Bill, Bill had always somehow managed to carve out of the sports department budget some money for this mm. where at other places and newspapers, the Olympics were relegated to the back page, if at all, as, especially in the off years, especially right? in the off years, right. Bill always managed to make it a priority. And, and then because of the Salt Lake thing, Bill recognized that this was genuinely groundbreaking mm -hmm. And because I had a news background, and and I'll tell you another quick reason why, uh, he he understood that we could do something really important, and so he really invested in me. And then what what also happened was, the IOC needed um, 
the, the Aussie had a story to tell. Now, whether it was a good story or not, they had a story to tell. So Anita de France, who's been on the IOC since 1986, uh, went to Juan Antonio Samaras at the time, and, and the IOC was like, w we need somebody new to tell this story. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the new guy. Because everybody else who had been covering the IOC had been there for a long time. Right. And so they looked around and they said, oh, here's this new guy from, of all places, the LA Times, where they actually cared about the Olympics. So Anita referred me to Samaranch. Wow. And so it turned out that he and I actually hit it off. And he totally invested in me. Behind the scenes, quietly, week after week, month after month. And he totally took me under his wing and said, this is how things work. And so we ended up in, um, over in 2000 doing this seven-part series of how the Olympic movement works that won this award, mm -hmm. the AP Sports Editor's Award for Enterprise Reporting. Right. Uh, and it's because, in large part, Juan Antonio Samaranch told me, taught me, how the Olympics works. That's great. That's great. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the super big secret to how I earned Samaranch's confidence. I don't think I've ever told this story before. So it's 1999, and I'm going to the All-Africa Games in okay. Johannesburg. The time sprang for me to fly business class from Europe to Joburg. Isn't that a blessing? I mean, I was like <laughs> a, a newspaper flying business class. Are you crazy? So... Samranch is like, I think on the, if I remember right, on the left side, I think it was two rows on each side. Samranch is on the left side with, uh, I don't forget whether his wife was there or somebody. And I was on the right side. He knew I was there, obviously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I did not bother him for the entire length of the flight. I did not say a word. I didn't say, I'm Alan Abrahamson of the LA Times. Can we talk? You know, I let him be. Hmm. I just let him be. And at the end of the flight, we got to Johannesburg, and he said, uh, Mr. Abramson, I appreciate your courtesy. Uh, when would you like to meet? Wow. Discretion. Sometimes you just have to know when to push and when not to push. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is always hard. It's so hard. Always. Yeah. Oh, so hard. Um, you also wrote, um, some, started writing some books. You wrote two books. One where you were the co-writer with Michael Phelps on his autobiography. Um, and then also Apollo Ono's book, both of which are New York Times bestsellers. Yes. Um, how did those come about? I mean, when did your extreme interest in individual athletes really start? Mm. Uh, that's a great question, John. So I had been following Michael's career for some number of years at the risk of being captain obvious. Michael was along with Usain Bolt, the most talented Olympic athlete to have come down the pike in the last 20 years and maybe ever statistically he is statistically yeah yeah um yeah I mean 28 medals 23 of them gold is tough that's to, crazy beyond compare and it's just beyond normal humans like me just me, can't fathom me too although having seen Usain run 958 in person I have to tell you that was pretty impressive 
pretty special. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I was in Athens. I, I, I had known the, very well the, the, the person, the director of the, the, the pool. Mm-hmm. We, we knew what was coming. I, I, I think you being a swimmer, you, you would agree that Michael's most impressive race, maybe his most impressive race ever, to be honest, and I'm not even talking about the Lezak race or the, mm-hmm. or the, the 100 fly in Beijing, or his most impressive race ever was the 200 free in Athens because he didn't have to race it. He, he stepped up. Mm-hmm. And he challenged Thorpe and Van Hugenban and lost. Well, he didn't lose. He, you know, he took third. Right. That, that's a race he did not have to swim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, when you see that kind of, I don't know how else to say this, greatness, you, you say to yourself, "What? What's next?" Mm-hmm. Right. Then, then the championships in Montreal were sort of a in Montreal in 2005 were sort of a trial period for. Michael and Bob, and then came Melbourne in 2007. Mm-hmm. And by this time, I was in regular contact with Peter Carlisle, who is Michael's agent. Right. And Bob is his coach. And Bob is his yeah. coach. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, Bob Bowman is his coach. And so Peter had floated the idea to me of writing a book. If Michael went eight for eight, there was clearly going to be a book. Right. I had no interest financially because it wasn't going to make or break me. Uh, but I, I mean, it was super interesting journalistically. Mm-hmm. And, but, and the key race everyone knew was going to be the relay. Right. And I remember seeing Peter, and Peter was soaked with sweat. <laughs> right? And I, I've watched the Lezak race. I, I don't know how many times you watched it. I, I've watched it two to three to four to 500 times. <laughs> you know, Jason wins every time. And right. it's, still, <laughs> it's still incredible to me. Right. And this is no knock on Cullen, who swam the third leg. Yeah. No knock on Cullen. But... That what Jason did is otherworldly, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the races are, you know, the goggles off, and mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, in the one race and the two hundred fly, and then the, and then the hundred fly by the one hundredth of a second, and just the whole thing is crazy, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, Michael's a different, obviously a different person now mm-hmm. than he was then. He was mm-hmm. twenty three at the time. Right, right. But. Uh, writing the book was a lot of fun uh, because for me it was an intense deadline experience Mm. they wanted the book out to be able to sell it for uh, Christmas that that Christmas so it was like four month turnaround yeah Yeah. well closer more than that I was writing 3,000 words a day oh oh my gosh yeah and that's one of the reasons they asked me to do it because they knew I could do it yeah but and and a bonus you got to know Michael very well and um, I'm assuming there are some you, you started discovering some, some of the things this, that made him tick, that make him so great. Yeah, so I think the thing that's so interesting to me is, this is the thing I find fascinating about great athletes, and it's the thing I find fascinating about Michael and Katie Ledecky in particular. Mm-hmm. What I say about Katie is that when she stands on the blocks, she is an absolute killer. Same, same with Michael. Agreed. And, and, and the thing that was so incredible, with the exception of Michael Kavich in 2008, is that everybody else knew they were going to lose. Mm-hmm. 
everyone knew they mm-hmm. were going to lose. Same thing here in Tokyo, with the exception of Ariane Titmus, who did not think she was going to lose in those two races. Which I want to talk about. Which we'll get to, okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think Katie did not think she was going to win those races either, but we'll get there, okay? Right, right. Uh, everyone else knew they were going to lose. When Michael did his wing flappy thing, they were all like, okay, I'm racing for second place. But Michael is so locked in. So what I usually say about, like, you can see this. Maybe you can relate to this when you were swimming yourself. Like, most people, when they're racing, whether it's swimming or running or doing archery or whatever, there's like a thought bubble that as a reporter, as a writer, you can sort of see in their head when they're the blocks or standing or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people are like, you can sort of watch like it's a cartoon. Like there's a thought bubble right there and they're like, all right, coach says do this or coach mm-hmm. says do that or think about the turn or think about the flip or think about how many strokes or think about the kick or whatever. With Michael, there's none of that. Right. It's just like, it's either nothing or like let's go or let's, let's kill it. There's nothing. Right? Ye- N- nothing. The, the, Best races I ever had, I remember nothing about them. I remember nothing about most of my races, but the best ones, I remember nothing. And that's how you win. Mm -hmm. Because you're calm, you're collected, and you're in the kill zone. Mm -hmm. Right? Agreed. You're in the total kill zone. And you have to be. Because a great athlete, and, and this sounds very unpleasant to a lot of people, you have to be arrogant enough to think you're gonna win. Yes. And you have to be in the kill zone. And when it's done, then you can be back to your pleasant John Moffat, I'm nice mm-hmm. person self. And that's how Michael and Katie are. Absolutely. I think all great competitors are, are that way. I mean, they, they, you know, you call it game face, you call it whatever, but it, it's definitely something um, that exists. And what's so spectacular about Michael Phelps, um, Katie, um, Adam Peaty, these swimmers who've had quite a longevity is that they're able to stay in that zone for prolonged amounts of time long time because my window of my true zone was relatively short and you saw the problem with michael in 2012 where he was unable to sustain this mental edge you really saw it Mm -hmm. and in 2016 you saw where he was back mentally but physically he was starting to give out just getting a little old and yeah but in 2012 he was like "Eh, what am i doing here i don't know really yeah yeah Yeah. the person who has had the greatest mental edge is apollo apollo is dynamite yeah i would love to meet that guy oh he is amazing he is amazing and a totally different person than michael but just he had some things happen to him as a teenager that i mean if you read the book you can Mm -hmm. see but he was like, what, what am I doing this for? He had, he had the who am I and what am I doing conversation mm-hmm. with himself way earlier than Michael did. And um, I, I think Michael's happened because of some events that uh, happened in his 20s that mm-hmm. we're all familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I genuinely believe that Nicole has been a great, great Good. influence. Good. Uh, but, but Apollo had these episodes when he was a teenager and he's like, well, why, why am I doing this? Right. And after that, he was like, I'm in. I'm 110% in. And then he knew how to surround himself with a team. Mm-hmm. And then after 2006, he was unsatisfied. And then he got himself down from Vancouver from 157 pounds to 141 with a, a combination of just training with this 
madman, I mean this lovingly, named John Schaefer, who mm-hmm. I adore. John put Apollo through the ringer. And Apollo was a lean, mean machine when it came right. to Vancouver. It was awesome. It is awesome also watching him race because you compare something like short track speed skating with swimming and they're in so entirely different in that short track speed skating is mass chaos. Yeah. Mass chaos. There's very little controlled except for the course. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I, I'm not good at this kind of thing, but I, I, I'm, I'm in control when I'm writing a sentence, when I'm writing. When, when Apollo went down in 2002 in Salt mm-hmm. Lake City, uh, and I've told this story many, many times in my journalism classes, I had two or three minutes to file the story. Two or three minutes. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and of course I made it because you, you had no choice. Yeah. And what, what was it? What, what, what do you attack? How do you attack it? Well, you have, you, the rest of the story is written and then you have three minutes to write the top three paragraphs. Mm. Right. And that's the mm. Steve Bradbury wins gold medal. Okay. And so one of the great moments in Olympic history. From Australia, he's 30 meters behind and he sails through and you're like, WTF, what just happened here? <laughs> right? But it, it was a great, great moment. But and those are the stories people love. You too. love it. You because have to nail them. You have to nail them, but you also have to think to yourself, what just happened here? And this yeah. is what I teach in journalism school. Just tell me what happened. Right, right. Right? Just be clear-headed about it. When Usain Bolt runs 9.58 seconds, he's, it's the fastest time any human being has ever run. Just say so. Just tell me what happened. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just say so. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, Apollo is, I, I mean, uh, he and I have a very different relationship than Michael and I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michael and I saw a lot of each other in Tokyo. Okay. Um, and Apollo and I, uh, have seen each other a lot because he bounces around the world. But when he's in Los Angeles, I, uh, it's just weirdly, we, we managed to see each other. And, uh, I, I just, he's a fantastic human being. Well, someday, hopefully I'll meet him. I hope you get to, um, uh, it was somewhere around a decade ago. You, you founded three wire sports, which is your online um, basically you're writing about international sports and your top line struck me immediately. And it says not just what's happening in and around the Olympic movement and international sports, but what it all means. So my take on journalism is that in a world where you can see what happened on TV or you can read about it on well, now on Twitter or whatever. Like, why would you read me unless you can find out what it means? I, I think people want to know why some, like, what stuff means. And they, 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 people have a limited time to read stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're going to read something, you're like, why, why am I reading this? And so if I'm reading it, I, I'm like, I, I need value. I need added value. And so the value is, what does this mean? Okay, so if, I mean, I haven't written this yet, but if Kirsty Coventry, for instance, was just appointed the chairwoman of the Coordination Commission for the 2032 Brisbane Olympics, okay, here's what I learned from Juan Antonio Samaranch. What Samaranch told me is that the the person who's heading up the next coordination commission is the most important person in the Olympic movement outside of the IOC chair, uh, outside the IOC president. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Right. 
So there's no question that, that Bach has signaled who he wants to succeed him. And the question is, is that going to be enough? Because Juan Antonio Samars Jr. is heading the Beijing Coordination Commission. Really? Yeah. And by the way, uh, China is very important in the Olympic movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. So now you see the way this contest is going to shape right, up. Right, all, all kind of contributing to what it means. And I agree with you, by the way, which is one of many reasons that I want to do this podcast is because I love athletes, I love sports. But more than the sports themselves, I love what it stands for and what it means and the power and the transformative nature so, of it. Well, thanks. So let me give you another example, something I haven't written yet, but I plan to. Okay. So... Everyone's going to bang on China. Like, totally get it. Yes. Not without good reason, right? Or at least what many people in the United States might think is good reason. And the New York Times did a story a couple weeks ago, or last week, about the limits are going to be placed on all of us who go. Uh, the bubble, the NBA. Not mm-hmm. really, but to, to form a comparison, an NBA-style bubble. Okay, but look at what's happened in Japan. We were surveilled 24-7. Okay. We had a GPS-style device put on our phone. We were tracked everywhere. Right. There was facial recognition technology used everywhere. There were cameras that tracked our every move in the public spaces everywhere. And because of COVID, we were forced to spit into a tube like every day, every other day, whatever your thing was. So Mm -hmm. now the Japanese have this incredible DNA database on some of the world's most interesting people. Okay. Wow, that is a perspective. So, but because Japan has this Hello Kitty effect all over the world, nobody's ragging on the Japanese the way they're going to rag on the Chinese. Wow. Wow. I've never heard any of that. Well, you're only one of two people that I know that actually went to Tokyo. Yeah, yeah so that's what I'm going to write, like, maybe today, tomorrow, next week. Wow. I had just, uh, yeah, I just never thought about it from that perspective. But right? And yeah. that's why I think I offer something different. One of my, uh, yes. another huge mentor of mine is Peter Ubroth. Okay. So do you know what the name of Peter's company is? Yes, it's Contrarian, I believe. Exactly, the Contrarian Group. Yes. So I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in not being part of the journalistic herd. Good for you. I love it. Right? Well, I love reading your stuff because because they're almost without exception a different perspective than I've heard. That's what I'm trying to do, right? And that's what Three Wire is really trying to get. It's those side alleys that we've talked about, right? That you're looking down those and finding things that that contributes to meeting as well. I'm trying. Thanks. Well, I certainly appreciate your your effort and and and. Your success. I love reading your stuff. It's a very unique style as well. There's a a conversationality to it. Well, that's deliberate. Yes. And the other thing is I try to be very direct. Mm -hmm. I also think that in today's world, people don't have time. And now I'm being just super glib. There's, (laughs) there's no, there's no time for Faulkner and Yachtavathaha County and long (laughs) sentences or whatever, but I try to be very conversational and I try to, Engage people. I, I think people want to read stuff that they like to read. Yeah, for sure. When I actually, oftentimes I will be searching for a topic and I will find an Alan Abramson article. And well, it always sheds a little bit more and a little bit different 
light upon whatever I happen to be Googling. Well, thanks. And by the way, I'm super aware that I'm not everyone's cup of tea, which is totally okay. Good. There you go. You're super confident in your ability that <laughs> <laughs> you spoke of but before. I, but all, criticism comes with the territory. That's okay. As mm-hmm. long as the criticism is not personal. I have zero, less than zero problem with saying I'm a jerk, you know, or I don't, I disagree with you. Mm-hmm. As long as they don't call me, uh, as long as the criticism is not personal, then I could care less. You had um, the fortune of being part of the, you explain to me what, what, you what your role was for the Tokyo Games as a as a journalist specifically. So I was the columnist for NBCOlympics.com, which uh-huh. I have been. Uh, I've been the columnist for NBCOlympics.com since 2008. I've had a role, formal role with NBC, online or on air since 2003. Okay, I saw you on the Today Show. Yeah. Yeah, fun. It's one of my funniest stories. My first on-air tryout for NBC was in 2003. And by at that point, you know, I I told you already about, you know, winning this one award in 2001. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, I'd won the National Headliner Award, which more or less, you know, you can quibble is recognition as the best sports writer in America, but at least by one definition, it might be the best sports writer in America. Okay. So I go to, I go to try out for this to go try out for uh, TV mm-hmm. and I do a reading and they're like, you know, you suck. <laughs> I'm like, brutal. I'm like, what do you mean? I suck. That's personal. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And they're like, no, you're terrible. I'm like, so at this point in my career, I'm like not really used to being told anymore that I'm terrible. And I'm like, well, what am I doing wrong? Mm. And they're like, you sound like a zombie. And they said, I said, really? They said, no, you're, you're just reading. Like you, and, and when you're on TV, you have to sound like you're Miss America. And you have to sound <laughs> like you're really perky all the time because the medium rewards a lot of life. If you don't sound like you're really engaged and really happy about being on television, people could tell immediately. Mm. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. Acting. Yeah. So I learned how to use my voice. (laughs) Well, first and foremost, we talked about the place in history of of the Olympics and Paralympic Games. Um, And Tokyo certainly has its place that we spoke about a little bit. But it will always, always be known as the COVID Games. In the first half of 2020, none of us really understood what was going on in the world with COVID and everything. Um, and the, the, the games were postponed. And then if you look at the athletes, the athletes, not only were they suddenly thrown a curveball, which is hard for athletes, but they were also their facilities. And so many of the instances were taken away. Were you able to speak to some of the athletes during this time when they were trying to, as all of us, trying to cope with COVID and the uncertainties leading to this past summer in Tokyo? Sure. And I think to answer your question, yes. Yeah. To answer your question more broadly, for every single one of us, 2020 was something of a coping exercise. By now, 
the stories of someone like Lily King swimming in a pond right. are famous. The stories of uh, Katie Ledecky swimming in a pool in someone's backyard's backyard. pool and and Palo Alto yeah. were famous. But it's not just that, you know. Um, I think one of the things that has helped me considerably. When I cover track and field, you, you may find this interesting or funny or whatever. You, uh, you know, swimmers um, or aquatics people tend to be a tribe, and track and field people tend to be a tribe. Mm. So the, the the track and field people tend to be very, very, very tribal. And I've said to many of my track and field friends, you know, you could learn a lot from swimming. And really? they're like, why, why would I care about swimming at all (laughs) right and but my swimming friends are like oh cool we could learn something from track and field it's a totally different vibe oh it's a totally totally different vibe the track and field people are like we we got nothing we're we're like the coolest we've been around since 776 bc we got we got nothing to learn from anybody else i'm grossly generalizing here yeah that's okay so the track people had a very hard time finding places to run right right and tracks are outdoors, the absurdity of that. Right? Come on. But yeah. uh, many high schools were closed. Mm-hmm. Many junior colleges were closed. Right. Ma- not even colleges. And it was very, very, very challenging. So imagine you're a pole vaulter. Oh. What would you do? I don't know. That's what they said. What am I supposed to do? Right. Imagine you're a high jumper or a long jumper. Right. Set up the sofa on the uh, end uh, and Okay, jump. so I mean, people legitimately were trying to figure out any... Jerry Rig situation yeah. they could do. Imagine right. you're a hurdler. It, I, it was very challenging. It, it certainly, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, it's a metaphor for whatever everyone was going through, and that's what I love about the Olympic Me Games too. and Paralympic Games. Me too. Me too. And yet, when you look at the performances in Tokyo, especially in track and field, uh-huh. you saw world records. Yeah. Right? This is shoes on the track, but we can talk about this separately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's well, it was spectacular. The athletes were spectacular. Let's let's say that on on the track. Yes. Um, So once you were actually at the games and you mentioned that there was all the various uh, surveillance, um, what what was more along the lines of the atmosphere when it came to the lack of crowds? And the athletes who have, all of them have grown accustomed to having crowds. So here's the best way I've tried to describe the games. People have come up to me dozens, if not hundreds of times since I got back. And they said, what, what was it like being in Tokyo? Mm-hmm. And I said, it, these were my 11th Olympic Games, summer and winter. Wow. And, and I said, you know, it, it, was, it was a lot like, it was it was a normal Olympic Games, except for all the weirdness. <laughs> and there was a lot of weirdness. Right. You've, you quickly got used to, no being, to there not being fans. But in fact, because at the swim meet, the athletes from each of the nations were allowed to be there, it was sort of like being at a high school meet for the Olympics. Where your teammates are cheering. Totally. Right. Right? So the athletes, I think, felt like they had support. It was just like being at the, you know, Northmont High School Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Okay, I can see that. And and at the track, the first couple days were a little slow. But after that, there were pockets Mm -hmm. of 
various countries, uh, coaches, uh, entourages, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So there was a little bit of a crowd, not not very right. much. Right. I mean, it, uh, it was certainly nothing like a normal Olympics, where you know you get the yeah, right, right, the big sort of like those wait. unforgettable moments. Yeah, the yeah. best way I've heard it described is electric jello, like you're running an electric jello. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great description, yeah, right? Yeah. But and the noise inside a inside a swim hall when you're uh, like in Beijing was just ah oh yeah yeah it's ah indescribable right? it truly is it as is an truly indescribable so so what it sounds like to me is you said it's it were tro- totally normal games except for the weirdness the athletes were the normal part yes and and I wrote my last column in Be- in Tokyo saying. The most important thing about the Tokyo Olympics is that they happened. And Agreed. I think and, and I think people tend to not focus on the obvious. And one of my big things is I teach my young people at SC, I say, you need to be a master of the obvious moto. You need to be you really need to focus on the obvious. The, the most important thing here is that these games happened. Absolutely. History will record that they happened. And we should not overlook that. I mean, you get used to the fact, oh, we were there for 17 days or 24 days or 25 days or whatever. That is the most important thing. In a COVID universe, Mm -hmm. these games took place. do Do you consider it kind of a tribute to the power and force of the will to get them done? Yes. And I think it's a tribute to, again, what we started this conversation with, hope and dreams mm. and the impact and import of that in a world that desperately needs these things. Totally agreed. Go, go back. Let's go back to the pool real quickly. A couple things that I were, I was, I, I noted, but one that just, it just hit me really close to the heart. And that was Lydia Jacoby yeah. winning the gold, yeah. beating the queen breaststroker, Lily King. <laughs> who, who took it quite like she was, she was quite the great sports person. But the thing that really got me was not only her surprise, which we can all relate to when we've been given a gift sort of unsuspectedly, but it was the fact that there was a camera in her hometown gym. And keep in mind, she's from Seward, Alaska. (laughs) She's 17 years old. And it was in her, I believe her high school gym. Yeah. And when they realized she won, it it stirs me to this day to see the power and the joy that that brought her community and her loved ones. And I think that 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 kind of moment extends out through all everyone watching. So I'm even getting goosebumps again, listening to you tell this story. I was watching live when Mm -hmm. this happened. I was in the NBC booth watching the whole thing, obviously right behind Rowdy and Dan. They were going berserk. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my job to go berserk, but of course you can't help but watch it and go, wow. Yeah. The Lydia Jacoby story is one of those only at the games moments. It's sort of like Dave Waddle winning the 800 in 1972. Mm-hmm. You're like, holy moly, where did this come from? Yeah. 
Yeah, this, uh, Alaska has one fifty-meter pool, and she doesn't even train in it. No, it's in Anchorage. <laughs> it's like it's like two-hour drive. And, and but for the COVID, she wouldn't even be at the Olympics because she would have been. She she and her family bought tickets to come watch Tokyo twenty twenty. The whole thing is an insanity story. Yeah, yeah. And she and uh, there's so many layers of this to unpack because Lily King. I have not been, candidly speaking, the biggest fan of Lily King. But in these games, Lily King, well, at least at this moment, Lily King was so gracious. Absolutely. She was such, she was, she handled it so perfectly, so well. And, and she is rather brash by nature. We've all seen that. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's fine. I just yeah. think, I, I, I personally think uh, that, 10, 20 years from now, she uh, and Yulia Efimova will have a very different relationship and that Lily will look back on what happened and say, why was I like that? Mm, that's interesting. Be- because this the very same thing that Yulia Efimova was busted for is the exact same thing that Jessica Hardy was busted for. Mm-hmm. And nobody's up Jessica Hardy's behind. Mm-hmm. But it's just that Yulia's Russian. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was training at USC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, she was. She was training here in Marina del Rey. Right. I mean, yeah. Right. And she's a nice girl. You know. I mean, I, I think the whole thing's been very unfair, and I think Yulia Fomova's gotten a very raw deal. Back to back to the Cinderella story, yes. real quickly. So yeah, Lyd- Lydia. Yeah. It, it just. Anyway, it just lit me up. And I think it's lit everybody up. To, this is what exactly what we've been talking about, again, for the last several minutes, that you could be a 17-year-old young woman mm-hmm. from Seward, Alaska, to use my own example, from nowhere, Clayton, Ohio, and win a medal at the Olympic Games. This is hope and dreams, hopes and dreams personified. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and, and it's true. It's it, it is. It, and it works. Yes. And it's the magic of being alive. So now I'm going to riff a little bit. Uh, my guy is Bruce Springsteen. I've seen him play live 39 times, oh my which to my Springsteen friends is nothing because many of them are from New York and New Jersey, and they've seen him play 200 times, right? But his, my favorite song of his among, well, but I have many, but his, my favorite song of his is called Land of Hope and Dreams. Okay. And, and that's what he's, and, and, but there's also a line in a song called Badlands that says, it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. Right? It's not. It's not. You, we, we have a very short time in our run, in our ride on planet Earth. And we need to seize these moments when we're like, wow, look at that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we, we, we have to be alert to hopes and dreams and the manifestation of those things coming, becoming real in our world. Because mm-hmm. that's what gives all of us the thrill of saying, see, 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 mm-hmm. it can be real. It can be real, and nothing was more real than um, Titmus's coach and his, <laughs> his celebration up in the midway up through the stands. That, that too, I, it was so precious. I know See? some people were very, you know, so how dare he do it that? It ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. It's not. It's right? not. And, and Nova, if you haven't seen that clip, <laughs> yeah. look up you that just clip. Just go see Darren Clark rocking and rolling, right? <laughs> it's just, it's just, it is absolute pure joy. There's just nothing else to it. And it's relief. It. And 
And, and how many of us would like to just let loose and, and say there is joy in our world? Well, there is, and the right? Olympic and Paralympic Games clearly bring that. Right? Yeah, for right? sure. But for how sure. many times have, have any of us really, really let that joy loose, really in our lives exhibited that joy, really to, to take this to its next level, which is the real thing in our world, that is love. Now, that uh, yeah. is love huh, yeah. in, in its genuine form for a, an athlete with whom he has worked and, and had faith and belief in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is life. That is the thing of life itself. It, it is, and why I think the um, whole Olympic principles come are, are so, they resonate so yeah, deeply yes. and for so long is because it, that some of these stories take on mythic proportions. Yes. There's the celebration, which is kind of like, I don't want to get too much into myth, but yeah. the celebration is the culmination um, in so many ways. But there was Simone Biles. I need to, I, I need to ask you about the whole Simone Biles thing. The, the person that people around the country called the goat greatest of all time immense amount of pressure on on her shoulders um and the thing everyone expected her to come in and just dominate like she did last year in the world championships and do the greatest some of the greatest gymnastics feats ever accomplished but she was in a different space and to me we all know that the immense pressure that she was feeling but she it was also human what happened was human and we all have those moments yeah i think this is the thing about simone in in tokyo michael has opened this conversation michael phelps has opened this conversation in a meaningful way apollo has as well apollo has as well yes but there can be no question that simone has amplified and advanced this conversation. Mm-hmm. And for me, the question is whether this conversation, this dialogue can be sustained in a meaningful way or whether it was a moment that happened in Tokyo uh, and only pertains to the Olympics or not. And I'll give you an example. Mm. Okay. So for instance, <clears throat> um, where's the disconnect between, uh, or is there a disconnect between, for instance, being able to boo uh, at an NFL game uh, or uh, being able to boo the ref. Uh, What about uh, those players? Do they have mental health issues or not? Are you allowed to boo them? Um, What about this whole thing with Bryson uh, DeChambeau? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the rules involving golf are very, very, very (laughs) strange. Um, what about, uh, are you allowed to boo the umpire at a baseball game? Does he have mental health issues? Um, I, I think we're all trying to sort out a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy, uh, many years ago. And of course this may be the thing. It was many years ago, but at the Washington, um, wizards games, who was famous for heckling? Are, are we allowed to heckle anymore? Mm. Are, are, when a baseball player steps into the batter's box, are you allowed to say, "Hey, number eleven, you're a bum"? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what are you know? What's the conversation that we're having or not having now? Who who has mental health issues and who doesn't? When you're a professional athlete, does booing come with the territory? I don't know. 
I don't, I don't know either. And it all goes back to what does it all mean, doesn't it? Right. We're all trying to figure this out together, and sports helps us hopefully figure out. This. I mean, this is, a, this is a larger question yeah. that you're asking. You're not just asking about sports. So, right. um, for it, sure. It, if you're the field goal kicker on an NFL team and you double doink, yeah. uh, if you're on the Chicago Bears and you double doink and you miss, mm-hmm. and you are the subject of vituperative criticism for the next week and a half, do you have mental health issues? Mm-hmm. Does that matter? I don't know. Evolving. Yeah. Everything's evolving. I mentioned that the Simone Biles kind of, for me, took on mythic proportions um, with Suni Lee stepping up. And yeah. in total, I re- still remember the morning that I woke up and she won, and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I think there's, let me just say this, there's, so much to unpack and deconstruct with what's going on in American gymnastics, but mm-hmm. all credit to Suni Lee. All credit. Uh, all, all, all credit is all I can say. Uh, absolutely, for sure. Um, you mentioned earlier that you um, are a professor at USC, University of Southern California, and um, you have been for, for quite a while now. What What drove you to teach the new generation your craft? So I really appreciate this question. So I'll try to answer it, and uh, this is the truth, and I always try to answer this by saying it's not gratuitous, it's for real. So I, I mentioned before that I went to college with a really special group of people. Uh, right. Uh, Michael Wilbon has been on uh, television for 20 years now. Uh, Mike's Black, mm-hmm. uh, Christine Brennan, who's one of the uh, leading uh, female sports writers in America. Mm-hmm. I think she was, I think Chris, Chris was the first person I ever met at Northwestern. Wow. She's from Toledo. I'm from outside Dayton. Uh, Charles Whitaker, who's the dean of the school, is black. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I went to college at a time when uh, being quote unquote, uh, different, uh, at least the three or four of us, uh, who went on to sports, mm-hmm. uh, were different if, if that's a way of putting it. Okay. And so being different was normal, uh, for us. Um, and, uh, it, it, it occurred to all of us that the only way we could change things in a business that was heavily, uh, white and male even though I'm white and male, I mean, uh-huh. I've always thought of myself as, you know, uh, being very Jewish, was to try to empower uh, a next generation of people who weren't just straight up white and male. Mm. So um, uh, I've tried very hard. I'm on the admissions committee at SC, mm-hmm. at the journalism school. Uh, and I've tried very hard, or this is my 11th year, to um, empower young people who don't necessarily look like me. Mm-hmm. My my first class uh, in graduate school was eleven women, no men. Wow. Um, one is now covering the Forty ers up in San Francisco. One works for the Daily Mail. One is uh, an assignment editor at Fox News, mm. uh, so on and so forth. Uh, one of my young men from the class of twenty fourteen, uh, a young black man, is now covering the Clippers for the Athletic. Um, y- you know. Um, I, I just don't, I've never found a good way to say this without sounding uh, 
the only way things change is if you make an affirmative effort to change things. It, but it's you, also really, really fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, bet. really fun. Uh, we've we've brought up myth, and I can't. I just had to. I, had to, I just had to look up Joseph Campbell and and what he said about stories because we're talking about stories here. Yeah. And and Joseph Campbell said famously said everything starts with a story. So here's how I put it. Yeah, uh, I think Joseph Campbell's brilliant. What I say and the way I start my classes. Among other things, I tell them that everything's off the record, but I, I do say, <laughs> and the reason for that is social media, actually. Oh, right, right. I say you can't learn if you're afraid that something you say is going to end up on social media. And it's off the record for your students as well. In cl- all my classes are off the record. Got it. Because that you, you, you can't learn if you, you're afraid that you're going to say something dumb and that the person next to you is going to say, so-and-so says, said the yeah. dumbest thing of all time. That's true, and you can't have a good team if you have that too. Right. Just saying, well, that's a side note. But we... So here's what I say. I say that since the dawn of time, mm-hmm. human beings have sat around campfires telling each other, telling ourselves stories. Yeah. And, and the reason we do that is because our world, although fragile and broken, is very complex. And what we're trying to do is make sense of it. And mm-hmm. essentially what we're trying to do is answer two essential questions. Who, who am I and, mm-hmm. and what am I doing here? Okay. And, and that's why we tell each other stories. What, what's going on here? Yeah. Who, who am I? What am I doing here? And how does this make any sense? For sure. And what it means, right? Yeah. And what, what does it mean? Right? Yeah. And that's why Three Wire Sports tries to tell you what it means in this context. Well, I certainly um, applaud your immense talent and ability to try to say what it means. Well, that's kind. Thanks. No, it's, it's true. I mean, have you, through the years, have you narrowed down a little bit more what this meaning is? And Yeah, it's uh, friends and family. Really, because the rest of it is noise. Yeah. And, and uh, because it's family and friends, actually, because, uh, and, I, and I spent a lot of time trying to teach the young people uh, what I call the noise or the signal from the noise. You know, what matters, uh-huh. what, what really matters. The rest just, of it is noise. And just go back to that. Yeah. I, I'm struggling with, what, obviously, what it all means. I think we all are. <laughs> it's part of the human existence. But um, and this, this podcast is founded, as I said, in part to try to sort of like try to make sense out of that or at least get some little tidbits of information here along the, la- the way. So, Alan, um, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your perspectives on why the Olympic and Paralympic Games are important to not only you and I as aficionados, <laughs> junkies, <laughs> junkies, but to but to everyone. Well, thanks. I, I I think one thing we haven't touched on, if I can say briefly, is yeah. that I think like 1932 and 1984, I think 2028 will change everything again. I really do. I think that. Casey is very, very smart. Casey Wasserman, 2028, you're referring to the 2028 games coming back to Los Angeles. I do. I am, excuse me. And I, I'm confident that in the same way that the Los Angeles games in 1984 transformed the Olympic movement for the way we know them now, right? I'm hugely confident that the 2028 games will transform them for a great chunk of the 21st century. 
in Los Angeles, we don't have to build anything. Right. That means you can concentrate on the human part of the games. Which is the important part. Which is the important part. Yeah. And so I think that's what's coming. If we can just hang on till we get there. Just hang on till we get there. We've got, got a few more to go. <laughs> six-ish years to go. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for, uh, for joining me and opening up your home. A pleasure. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, John. Earlier, Alan spoke of the inspirational words of Bruce Springsteen and asked me to share these lyrics taken from the 1978 song, Badlands. It goes, For the ones who had a notion, a notion deep inside, that it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. Yes, indeed. If you'd like to read Alan's work, head to 3wiresports.com. That's the number 3, W-I-R-E-S-P-O-R-T-S, dot com. Or pick up his books, Michael Phelps' No Limits, The Will to Succeed, and Apollo Ono's Zero Regrets, Be Greater Than Yesterday. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining Alan and me on this deep dive into the aspirational world of athletes and the Olympic and Paralympic Games. If you are inspired by this episode, please tell a friend and give us your five-star review. This has been Sports Life Balance. Until next time, be glad you're alive. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Sports Life Balance.